Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us on Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're in week four of our current series in 1 Corinthians with Dr. John Newfeld. On the program today, we'll learn what constitutes the way of wisdom in a message called How to Become Wise. Some time ago, I heard the following story. Apparently, Henry Ford once asked electrical genius Charlie Steinmetz to build the generators for his factory. And one day, the generators ground to a halt and the repairman couldn't find the problem. So Ford called Steinmetz, who tinkered with the machines for a short period of time and then turned the generators back on. Well, the generators immediately sprang to life and Ford was grateful. And that didn't take very long at all. But Ford got a bill for $10,000 from Steinmetz, and in that day, that was a huge amount of money. Such a high bill simply overwhelmed him. He immediately sent a letter wanting a detailed list of the costs. And Steinmetz sent his reply. For tinkering with the generators, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Well, Ford paid the bill without asking another question. He intuitively understood Some things are worth a great deal more than a tabulation on a spreadsheet. In Job 28, Job asks the question, where can wisdom be found? And then he adds these words, it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir or precious onyx or sapphire. Solomon said something very similar in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3.15 says of wisdom, she is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Or there isn't a price tag you can place on wisdom. This thing is priceless. We've come to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And for three chapters now, Paul has been trying to help the Corinthian Christians solve their problems with divisions that were threatening to destroy the church. He is so serious about these things that in the last section, he had to warn the church that if anyone destroyed the church, God would destroy him. So you want to cool your jets when it comes to disputes in the church. But there is so much more than just a word of warning here. The problems in Corinth stemmed from the fact that they hadn't grown spiritually. They were acting like babies, juvenile Christians who hadn't grown up in the faith. This was seen most in their underestimation of the worth of the cross. Instead of trusting in the wisdom and power of the cross, the Corinthians were noticing the shortcomings of their leaders. And Paul put his finger on the problem. The Corinthians were resting in the wisdom of men rather than the power of God displayed in the cross. And then Paul makes it plain. There is a wisdom from God found in the cross that is foolishness to men, but it is this wisdom they must pursue. And here's his conclusion. The divisions in the church could be eliminated if the Corinthian Christians were less impressed by their own wisdom and instead were captivated by the wisdom of God. If only they would seek true wisdom, see its value, and trust in what God had given. And with that in mind, Paul is about to tell the Corinthians how they might become truly wise and why becoming truly wise is so very valuable, more precious, as Solomon said, than the gold of Ophir. Well, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. 
So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Well, let's take this text one step at a time. First, let's see if we can understand Paul's general statement. He wants to say that true wisdom is countercultural. Notice how Paul begins with the words, let no one deceive himself. He's warning against self-deception. This very thing, self-deception, was happening in the Corinthian church. Self-deception had brought about the divisions which were tearing this church apart. Self-deception had caused them to criticize the shortcomings of their leaders. But how had they become self-deceived? It must have happened so subtly. In their attempt to reach out and perhaps win their culture, they had begun to use the very wisdom their culture rested upon. They were using human wisdom, that is, culturally accepted means of running the church. What they should have done is recognize the contrast between the Christian faith and the values of this world. They should have willingly accepted the reality that their culture would call them fools and that they should have borne that label gladly. I think this is necessary for us to hear today. Think of some of the examples of the differences of values we Christians have with the values both in our day and in Paul's day. Corinthian society was overwhelmingly sensual, as is our day. Yet according to Jesus, we are not even to look at another with lust in our heart. We're told to keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. We're warned against any other expression of sexual activity other than the lifelong monogamous covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. We think that God designed sex for heterosexual marriage only. Now, our culture thinks that foolish. They think that any form of sexual expression, provided it is consensual, is to be both welcomed and encouraged. That for them is wisdom. To disagree for them is outrage. So let me suggest another example. Corinthian culture, like ours, thought that a variety of religious and spiritual experiences were healthy and expanded your frame of reference. They were, in effect, universalists and inclusivists. But the Bible commands us that we ought to have no other God before the Lord, that we are to worship the Lord only, and that all other spirituality is, in fact, idolatry. We openly proclaim Jesus and his cross as the only cure for human sin. Christ had to die, and apart from him, there is no salvation, and the world thinks that as utter folly. So at the outset, Paul demands that the believers in Corinth get comfortable with the label fool. Of course, there are countless other examples of a clash of two systems of wisdom, the Lord's and the world, including our insistence that we must forgive those who persecute us and even love our enemies, that we must not lay up treasures on earth, rather in heaven. I mean, the examples go on and on. Our wisdom is folly to the world. The fact is, the message of the cross and the demands of the cross make us profoundly countercultural. And if you are to learn God's wisdom at all, you must become a fool in the eyes of the world. Okay, so in order to become truly wise, that is, wise in the things of God, we must accept the label of fool in the culture. Unless we're willing to go there, we will never be truly wise. And now Paul wants to tell us why this is necessary. He says, true wisdom exposes the world's folly. Notice how Paul begins verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. When Paul states the matter the way he does, he's simply repeating that which he has said earlier. In chapter 1, verse 18, he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then in chapter 1, verse 20, he said, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
Paul is looking at the things that the culture around them thought to be the pinnacle of wisdom and announced that this is nothing but the foolishness in the eyes of God. And then, in order to make his point, Paul quotes from two Old Testament passages. The first is taken from Job 5.13. This quote is part of a lengthy speech which Eliphaz, one of Job's miserable comforters, is giving Job. Eliphaz is telling Job that the reason he is suffering is because he has sinned. And then in 5.13, he tells Job, God catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Now, it's true that Eliphaz misuses this understanding of God, but the quote in itself is still true. God frequently turns human wisdom on its head and works it against men and women. If you reject the wisdom of God and follow your own paths, God's going to catch you and use your bad judgment against you. Now, there are plenty of biblical examples of that. For instance, in 2 Kings 16, Ahaz is king of Judah, and he's in a great deal of difficulty. Two minor kings have joined forces and are attempting to destroy his kingdom. And Isaiah the prophet comes to him and tells him not to fear, but to trust firmly in the Lord. Don't make an alliance with anyone but God, says Isaiah. But that seems folly to Ahaz. Instead, Ahaz pays money to the superpower of the day, the great Assyrian army, to protect him against these minor powers. In short order, the two minor powers are dispatched, but now Ahaz and Judah have a problem far greater than what they used to have. Assyria now knows of the wealth of Judah, and there is more money where that first payment came from, and now the new problem is so much greater than the old problem. One worldly, human-centered solution to a problem opened the door to a monstrous problem. If only Ahaz had listened to the wisdom of God, but God exposed Ahaz and caught him in his folly. See, I can't tell you how often I've counseled with people. Do it God's way. No one ever obeyed God and was sorry for it later. I've said that to young people dating non-Christians, to business people making an ethical decision, to people deciding whether to confess their sins or to hide them, or to young woman who is wondering whether to end her pregnancy with an abortion. No one ever did it God's way and was sorry afterward. But the world is filled with the groans and the cries of those who rejected the wisdom of God. But if we don't do it God's way, God really does catch the supposedly wise in their craftiness. Human wisdom always ends in ruin. In a culture that says the wisdom of God is utter foolishness, it's a challenge for all believers to continue to stand by it, even when it means we're mocked by the world. Yet we must do so for the sake of Christ's church and for the building of his kingdom. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will continue to unpack what it means to have wisdom that causes us to boast only in the Lord. This Christmas, join with us for a renewed vision for the season, a renewed passion to stand shoulder to shoulder in advancing the clear message of the gospel story. For us, a child is born. Well, December is the time of year that sets the tone for the new year of ministry ahead. Your gifts ensure the gospel message is heard across the nation. So whether you're a long-standing partner in ministry or you've recently been impacted by any of the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada, could we ask you to stand with us this month in our effort to raise $465,000 by December 31st? Your gift, among other committed ministry partners across Canada, will sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry into 2020. 
Please consider sending your gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Paul's second Old Testament quote comes from Psalm 94, 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. God knows that the wisest among us are no match for his infinite wisdom. And then having made this point that if you're going to be wise, you'll have to put up with the jeers of this world and that the best of human wisdom is sheer folly, Paul now comes to his conclusion. Verses 21 to 23 reads, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So what's the conclusion? I think it's this. It is God, not man, who rules all things. Don't boast in people, he says, or stop your boasting about men. Apollos or Cephas or Paul, this is the heart of folly. And then perhaps surprisingly, he adds, all things are yours. He turns from a negative, stop boasting, to a positive, all things are yours. But what can that mean? Well, in order to understand that, let's look at the five items that Paul says are yours. Gordon Fee says these five items are ultimate tyrannies of human existence, to which people are in lifelong bondage as slaves. And yet, Paul says that these five things are not their lords to which they are slaves, but actually belong to the believers. They don't need to fear them. Indeed, they possess them. So let's look at these five things. The first one that Paul mentions is the world. If the world belongs to believers, we might ask, how so? You know, I was in a public washroom some time ago, and on the wall, someone had scribbled a bit of graffiti, and it simply said, the meek will inherit the earth, if that's okay with the rest of you guys. You know, I read that and I laughed. How absurd I thought that we would believe with Jesus that the meek will inherit the earth. You know, it's the strong, the powerful, the resourceful, and even the merciless who often seem to inherit the earth. And yet, is it not so that our God created this earth? None of the world's leaders did that. And is it not so that, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, that the creation will be set free from its bondage and corruption at the second coming of Christ? Is it not also true that, as Colossians 2.17 so eloquently reminds us, that in Christ all things hold together, that Christ is even right now sustaining this earth, that without his constant care this earth could not exist even for a single second? And is it not also true that Christ appoints us, his people, as stewards of the earth, and in the end will grant to his children that we will rule and reign over the works of his hands? Yes, the earth is ours. And now the second and the third thing that we possess. Paul here refers to life and death. I'm reminded here of the words of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. It speaks of Christ who through his death destroyed the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, this passage might mean that Satan incites people to sin and through sin comes death, or it might mean that Satan puts people to death. But regardless of how you understand Satan's role in death, the fear of death is immense. Death stalks the human race. We live under its shadow. 
Now, here's the contrast. 2 Timothy 1.10 reminds us that Christ Jesus conquered death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Romans 6 reminds us that our old self was crucified along with Christ, and in that same chapter, we are told this leads to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And to this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul shouts a triumphant cry, Where, O death, is your victory, and where, O grave, is your sting? Or to put even more emphasis on this, in Philippians 1.23, Paul says that to depart and be with Christ is better by far. By far, he says. And so Christians approach the issues of life and death through the cross of Jesus. And once we see clearly the picture of the cross, we confess that not only the world, but also life and death are ours. We have possessed them. And then comes the fourth item we possess. Paul says we possess the present hour. It's the present world with its potential for joy and heartaches. This is ours as well. Christians are aware that nothing happens by chance. But all things, whether our health or sickness, our joys or sorrows, our wealth in this world or poverty in this world, all things are governed by the hand of a meticulously sovereign God who controls all things for his glory and our long-term good. Along with Paul, all Christians must confess Romans 8.28 that God even causes, yes, all things, all things to work together for the good to those who love him. And if all that were not enough, Paul must add a fifth item of those things we also possess. We possess, he says, the future. The future is ours. Every Christian can say with confidence that our best days are certainly not behind us, but they are indeed ahead of us. Now, That in itself is quite a list, five things that belong to believers, but Paul has more information to communicate. In verse 23, he adds, and you are Christ's. That is, you may possess these five things, but Christ possesses you. All that we have is only through Christ. You and I never act independently. The very first question in the Heidelberg Catechism goes as follows. What is your only comfort in life and death? And then it gives the answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only solace, your only source of hope? As you come to the great moments in the extremes of your life, you know, perhaps you're getting older and you know that your death approaches. What is your only source of comfort? That man might be able through the wisdom of new technologies to extend your life? Absolutely not. My only comfort is that I belong to Christ, my faithful Savior. I am His possession, and because He is faithful, He keeps all promises to those who are His own. That is my only source of comfort. But Paul is still not done. He adds, and Christ is God's. Or the Son is possessed by the Father. Paul will say more about that later in this book, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. He's going to argue that the Son is subject to the Father. That is, the Son submits fully to the plan of the Father. You know, part of the mystery of the Trinity is found in those verses. The Son is fully equal to the Father, yet submits to the Father in all things. And that reminds us that Christ possesses us, his people, according to the eternal decrees of the Father who foreknew us before the foundations of the world. It is not that I hope I am in Christ. I am in Christ because of the word of the one 
who, according to Ephesians 1.4, chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that word cannot fail. Now, all of this is quite a mouthful. It's really an amazing three verses at the end of 1 Corinthians 3. But why does Paul remind the Corinthian believers about these things? Why so fill their hearts with this glory? It's because so many of them were self-deceived by the standards of this world. So many were self-conscious of the world, which would call them foolish if they relied on the cross. It was because in preferring one of their teachers over the other, they were in fact being guided by human wisdom rather than the wisdom of God. Now, reject the wisdom of the world. Turn your back upon the wisdom of this world. Gladly bear up under the scorn that the things of God are foolishness to this world. Prefer the wisdom of God to the wisdom of men. Prefer holiness, purity, love, an exclusive claim that Christ alone is Lord. Prefer the folly of the cross and prefer to rely on its power rather than the giftedness of men. And that's the way of wisdom. And that's the way in which divisions in the church are solved. Heavenly Father, we must confess to you that we have not preferred the wisdom of God. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray, cure this madness so that we would no longer be intimidated by this world, but rather may we find in you our hope and our delight and joy. May this be our comfort. In the name of Jesus, amen. John, thanks for today's message. A great reminder to seek after the wisdom of God. But how do we deal with the wisdom of this world? Is it all bad? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, there's so much that happens in this world that is positive. And we need to acknowledge it and recognize it. I mean, I'm glad for the wisdom that comes in, in terms of so much of the technology and the life that we now live. I think also there's wisdom. I think I've said it in the past. I'm very happy uh, with how out of sorts racism is in our world. I'm thankful for that. But I think this is what the Bible says. When it comes to knowing God, there is no other wisdom than the one that God supplies. Every other form of wisdom when it relates to our own souls or our future eternally or uh, our relationship to God must either come from God or it is sheer folly. So I think that's the context in which Paul is giving that, and that's what we need to remember. We can't know God without his wisdom. Do you truly understand the way of wisdom? If we're all to do things God's way, what amazing solutions would be found to our human problems, problems like conflict and division and pride? When we grasp what we have attained in Christ, the world, life and death, the future, we'll recognize that God's wisdom is all we ever need. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld provides regular, insightful interviews with Christian leaders into some of the most provocative and current issues of the Christian life. How would the Bible have us live, think, even respond to issues that ultimately define who we are as God's people? How should we act and respond to the world around us or live uniquely within the church? Join Dr. John Newfeld for these unique and intimate conversations that ultimately provide biblical insight for living as we strive to live as people of faith. Never miss an episode or check out past episodes by visiting and subscribing to our YouTube channel at Back to the Bible Canada. For more information, call us today at 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And please consider offering a gift this month to support our critical year-end campaign. Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.